line of the horizon of the sea is a familiar sight in the town of Falmouth. If you're at the top of a hill, coming down toward Gilly, it looks as if there stands another mountain, another hill to conquer. At times deep blue, at times crystalline, at the best of times golden as it bathes in light, this line washes into you, pulling you closer with the tide, and even in a storm, it is a sight. The line of the horizon of the sea closes around the bay in Falmouth as if to hog it. And as the boats come in and drift out, it seems as if they come out of nowhere, as if they go nowhere. The line of the horizon of the sea, when you float in the waters of Falmouth, makes you feel as if you're on a ball, one that trembles, one that won't tip over. The line of the horizon of the sea hides the seagulls that drive you a little bit mad in the spring with their operas, and brings them back to you when you've forgotten you missed them to start the cycle again. This line has seen innumerable moments in history. This line will see many more, but a handful of those moments are our business here. And in this episode, we will explore the life of someone who made that line their friend. We explore the long, eventful life of maritime painter, mustache enthusiast, and almost monk, Charles Napier Hemi. We learn a little about the moment in art he belonged to. We hear the work of poet Sarah Cave he inspired, and we find out more about the regulations of Falmouth Cemetery. My name is Sherezada Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill. Born on the 24th of May 1841 in Newcastle upon Tyne at 17 Blackett Street, Charles Napier Hemi was the first son of composer and musician Henry Frederick Hemi and his wife Margaret MacDonald. Family lore has it that she was of the people of the Isles and a descendant of Angus MacDonald, known as the Black Highlander. The Hemi family had emigrated from East Germany to Scotland, specifically from Saxe Coburg Gotha the same region from where Queen Victoria's husband, His Serene Highness Prince Albert, was from. We heard a little bit from him in episode 7 with the arrival of the train to Plymouth. Henry Frederick and Margaret would go on to have 10 boys and 3 girls. Two of Charles's brothers also became painters, and it is known that as children, unable to rely on the expensive paper, they drew on slates, according to Margaret Powell, Charles's granddaughter, who wrote Master of the Sea, a book about Charles Napier Hemi. The Hemi family spent a few years in Newcastle, and although initially Protestant, they converted to Catholicism after Charles's father took a job as an organist in a Roman Catholic chapel. Converting to Catholicism was an unusual path in Victorian England. When Charles was nine, 
and the only Catholic boy at school, he was tried by his classmates who denounced him as a papist. Centuries had rooted hatred towards Catholics since the Act of Supremacy in 1534, which declared the monarch the only supreme head on earth of the Church in England. Catholics had seen their presence in the public sphere reduced. It took many different stages for this to change. The 19th century saw the Catholic emancipation of 1829, which further removed the distinction placed upon them. This was strengthened by the reestablishment of the Catholic Church in England in 1850. On the same year, the Hemi family emigrated to Australia by way of a sailing ship, the Madawaska, which became Charles's first experience at sea. Familiar with the River Tyne, it wasn't until this journey that Charles would get a glimpse at the open sea, and the sight lingered. I can remember it entered my soul. It was imprinted on my mind, and I never forgot it. I have gone on painting it all my life. He quickly developed an interest in sailing, and would at times be allowed to support the work of the men on the ship. The Tremont's journey, which included the sighting of a whale knocking the ship, and the birth of a new baby brother, Thomas, brought the Hemi family to Australia. They settled in Melbourne just when a gold fever was picking up. Henry Frederick would soon join it, and an 11-year-old Charles managed to tag along. The rough conditions at the mining sites would make this a short-lived experience. After finding enough gold and selling their possessions, the Hemis returned to England. Back in Newcastle, Charles, now 13, began training in the Newcastle Government School of Design under William Bell Scott who was close to the Pre-Raphaelites and influenced by Roskinian realism. Hemi was also influenced by his uncle, Isaac Hensel, who painted coastal and rural scenes. Charles began sketching as a young man in Newcastle, and in the summer, I got to see some of his earlier work. This is amazing. The notebooks are tattered and held by pieces of string and full and full of drawings of the coastline. In the 1858 notebook, there is a beautiful drawing about a boat resting on the shore. It seems like it would have taken a bit of time, crafted with a white pencil and a black pencil. And then, in one of the posts where the boats rest ashore, there's what seems to be a really quickly drawn drawing of a bird, clearly <laughs> not at the level of skill as the rest of the drawing added, maybe as a joke. I wonder if that was one of the seagulls of Newcastle. I wonder if that entertained him. But art wasn't the only pull on Hemi's life. The story has it that in 1855, whilst listening to a sermon, Charles first considered becoming a priest. In April that year, he enrolled in Yusho College, a Roman Catholic training college in Durham. This first attempt wouldn't last long, and Charles ran off to sea without his parents' consent in search of adventure. A 
was a young, pious man, he struggled to fit in among the sailors. Their ways scandalized him, and often he would be found spending time alone and in prayer. He also missed having time and his tools to paint, explaining on a letter home that he felt as a ship without a mast without them, and that if he stayed at sea, he would lose all interest in art. It was during one of these adventures, when he was aboard the Britannia, that he first spotted Falmouth from the deck of the ship, one Boxing Day in 1858. Mm, let's say that it didn't make a great impression. Falmouth is a dirty hole as bad as shields, but there are some fine boats here. Life as a seaman wasn't to last. Charles became ill and went home to recover. But the storm and drunk conflicts of his life, as an article in the Falmouth Pocket called it, would pull him again towards a religious life. Concerned about the sinfulness of contemporary urban life, Charles joins a Dominican monastery in Lyon, France, one which was part of the Society of the Holy Name of Jesus. The year was 1860 or 1861, and he took the name of Brother Cuthbert, firmly anchored in his northern roots. Many are called, but few are chosen. After Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Feeling called to a religious life isn't easy. Where do we, the restless, the unchosen, go when passed over? To the shadows where ridges of light furrow the sand? To the shoreline where an old woman sets her trap? To the canvas where the edges of land are coloured oils. He spent a couple of years as a monk, but the restrictions of a close religious life took their toll on young Charles. He missed his family, feeling the responsibility of the eldest son keenly, and he too missed the pleasures of everyday secular life. If you think I have left the world without a struggle, that I no longer love home, friends, brothers, sisters, or my own comforts, my own painting, my liberty, my pleasures, far from it. I never loved them more now that I have left them. Do you think I have forgotten all of you, and all my father has done for me? Could I, without being moved, see the pain I have caused you to know I have left you in your old age without comfort or my support? I have never spoken of it to you, but you must have guessed it. From Charles Napier Hemi's Sketchbooks, Notebooks and Letters, presented the Ashmolean Museum, Oxford, by Sister Beatrice Hammond, Convent of Notre Dame, on behalf of the artist's daughter, Marjorie Napier Hemi, 1972. At 22, now sure he wouldn't become a priest, Charles was set to work adapting paintings into stained glass designs. The task would prove a renewal of his connection with art, and he soon returned to England, finally settled on the goal of becoming a painter. On Balance Dear Charles, I empathise with your restless searching, as you try to find a rhythm to your vocation, a harmony between daily chore, as the beat of your heart slows in communion. You meditate, brush, or pencil against paper, cloth, leaf, shell. 
Without fear of indolence, life is too swiftly passing, satisfied in the knowledge that we are our own instrument. From the middle of the 18th century across to the beginning of the 19th, a group of British painters began to compete with the acclaim of those established in Europe. Artists like Thomas Gainsborough, Sir Joshua Reynolds, and Richard Wilson provided new paths for painting, leading the way for others to gain track. The English romantics of landscape painting, led by Turner and Constable, were able to emphasize the effects of light, its transience and atmosphere, using color to evoke awe and capture the grandeur of the dynamic natural world, as described by the Encyclopedia Britannica. Breaking with classicism, Turner and Constable would find their own ways to explore what light can do to landscape, unleashing color from shapes and allowing brushstrokes to come through, establishing some of the elements we would later see in the Impressionists. The advances that Turner and Constable achieved would have widely reaching consequences. Nature was a great theme, and fresh observation in the landscape was key. This saw many painters out and about across the UK, often working alongside each other and capturing themes of the daily life of those who had to navigate the landscape for their sustenance. Cornish pilcher fishing, for example, finds itself represented by Turner in St. Moss in 1812, and later by Hemi in 1897, on what perhaps is his most famous work. Painting on plein air became the staple, and multiple colonies of painters established themselves in areas of natural beauty where they could explore all facets of light. The fishing village of Newlin found itself being the host of an artist colony with over 20 painters coming to take residence in and around the town from the 1880s to just before World War I. The newly school focused on depicting everyday life in rural Cornwall. Fishing families are often portrayed, showcasing a romanticized version of what would quickly become a different Cornwall. Study of a sailing dinghy, tips in the blue surf of the bay, an apple is decored, nerves ring with pain, the body is a stranded frame. Prostrate beneath a canopy of sky, sea, the division unclear. A beacon concealed like Greek ships. Just beyond sight, the horizon, a ledge of mist. Nightly orison, from Compline to morning prayer, all is silent. The body's desire is flotsam. Where am I? Talking to angels. Both sky and sea conceal others. Blues, greens, greys in a draughtsman's palette. The sea is an arboretum. Study of a sailing dinghy is arboreal and or relating to trees. A study in little trees. A study in trees reaching through mist, a study in relationship, a relationship between sea and sky, a relationship between you 
and me, a relationship between tree and I. Even now, I cannot be kept by the rocks with a barrel on my head. Of Hemi's skills at depicting the sea, Brian Stewart, former director of the Falmouth Art Gallery, said, The oceans swell, its power, strength and dangers are all captured with a brilliance rarely equaled and never surpassed. End quote. In 1918, on a memorial exhibition, Sir Fran Brangwyn R.A. would describe what to him Charles's work meant. To me, Hemi stands for the waters of England. Among those artists of the British school who have made the sea their special study, his position is secure. Sir Frank Branwyn, R.A., Fine Art Society, exhibition of works by the late Charles Napier Hemi, R.A., London, 1918. A conception of what was the British school changes across its depiction in the works of different art critics. It is less tied to a joint movement from the artists themselves and more to the perspective that there was something intrinsically national about the way painters would paint if they were French, English, German, Dutch, and so on. Between the 1880s and the 1910s, ideas of national myths and ancient histories were growing in popularity. The notion of national schools hardened in this period extending a place where ideological and political competition over who was the best could take place. The path to become a significant contributor to British and even international art would be a long one for John Charles Napier Hemi, who had finally begun to focus on art in his mid-twenties. It is this decision that finally brings him to Cornwall. But before we explore more of his life, let's learn a little bit more about Falmer Cemetery at this time. Darkness cannot destroy There are some things darkness cannot destroy The first person registered as buried in Falmouth Cemetery was Alfred Williams, a 13-month-old baby. Although the cemetery had been in use before, The official records only begin in 1854. Alfred was buried in Falmouth Cemetery on the 4th of November 1854 in a common unconsecrated grave, as would be usual for the first few burials. It would take three more years for a portion of the cemetery to be consecrated, as we discussed in episode 9. In the Falmouth Burial Ground Regulations published in October 1892, the characteristics of a high Victorian park and garden cemetery begin to come across. Dogs, a common visitor now, were not permitted to enter the ground in the 19th century. Openings and closings of the ground were also regulated, and the regulations provide a clear guidance on how to behave when inside and who could visit. On and after the fourth day of October 1892, The burial grounds will be open to the public, under certain regulations, daily between 8am and sunset, except on Sundays, and on Sundays between the hours of 8am and 10am and 2pm to sunset. Children less than 10 years of age will not be admitted, except under the care of a responsible person, and all visitors will be expected, in general, to keep on the gravelled roads and walks, and invariably to refrain from touching the shrubs or flowers, and to observe perfect decorum in all respects. 
just exactly what was the perfect decorum expected is also described in the regulations, leaving little room for doubt as to how penalties for destroying or disturbing would be charged. Every person who shall willfully destroy or injure any building, wall, or fence belonging to the burial ground, or destroy or injure any plant, or pluck the flowers from any grave therein, or who shall daub or disfigure any wall thereof, or put any bill therein or on any wall thereof, or willfully destroy, injure, or deface any monument, tablet, inscription, or gravestone, or do any other willful damage, play at any game, or sport, or discharge firearms, save at a military or naval funeral, in the burial ground, or willfully or unlawfully disturb any persons assembled therein for the purpose of burying any body therein, or commit any nuisance within the ground, shall be liable, on conviction, to forfeit to the burial board, for every such offence, a sum not exceeding five pounds. Falmouth Burial Ground Regulations, published by the Order of the Board, Falmouth, 3rd of October, 1892. All that for a fiver. A map of the town in 1899 shows the area of Woodlane all the way to Melville Road, much as it stands today. Houses and gardens, the Alma Crescent, what would eventually become the Falmouth School of Art, are all there, a ten-minute walk away from the cemetery. It was no longer placed at the edge of the town. Indeed, the town had extended up and across the hills to meet it. Falmouth Cemetery relaxed the rules of its use across the centuries. This place is a common site for walkers, and we often hear from listeners who walk their dogs across its pathways. It is a place for study, where people come to reminisce, honor a family member, pray, Exposed to the maritime winds, it changes across the seasons, and wildlife has made a comfortable, rarely disturbed home here. When the spring comes, in a few months, we'll see the bluebells and wild garlic like strokes of paint on the green expanse, gently holding on to a layer of grass that covers the fallen graves. Somewhere here, beneath a sheet of Freeman granite, rests Charles Napier Hemi. Let's learn more about his life as a painter and as a Falmodian. In 1862, Charles attends the International Exhibition in London. It was sponsored by the Royal Society of Arts, Manufacturers and Trade, and it featured over 28,000 exhibitors from 36 countries. He also began reading the work of art critic John Ruskin which emphasized nature and its phenomena as the greatest place for art. Along the coast of the northeast, Hemi begins to capture exquisitely detailed coastal scenes. He focuses, like many of his contemporaries, on the geology and the sea. He reconnects with William Bell Scott and begins to exhibit work across England. During the summers, he finds his way to the fishing village of Clovelly at Devon, where he would paint among the shingles at Clovelly, one of the representative paintings of the influence of pre-Raphaelite landscape on Charles' generation of painters. But when the weather turned bad, he would return to London, where he worked in William Morris's workshop, again adapting artist designs to their use in stained glass. On his birthday in 1866, 
He married Marianne Lloyd. Mr. Hemi entered the bonds of matrimony about the age of 25 and was fortunate in his choice of a lady with ample means. This enabled him to escape the struggles and temptations that beset the usual path of an artist. Newcastle Chronicle, 1866 And the work continued, making connections across different circles and exhibiting when possible. When one of his paintings was reviewed in the Art Journal in 1867, Hemi's talents comes through, but it's also clear that more work is needed. Napier Hemi is a painter from whom greatness might be looked for in the future, at least by one who shall live long enough to see him fairly clear of his eccentricities. The Art Journal, 1867, page 269. Charles too wasn't satisfied with his skill, and in the year of 1867, he travels to Belgium to train on their Baron Lace's studio. In Antwerp, he concentrates on drawing and trains with the boys. The paintings of this time show figures at the center of focus. Hemi learns to understand and to capture movement. Many religious themes follow, and Charles sends some across the channel to London. He would spend a few years between Antwerp and town, eventually settling by the River Thames after Baron Lace's passing. The Hemis soon become part of artistic life in the city, and his work becomes influenced by Whistler's and by one of his closest friends, James Jacques Joseph Tissot. Gerard Dumarier, grandfather to Daphne and Angela, was also among this circle. Charles would continue to travel to Devon and Cornwall to paint in the summers. With time, his style begins to relax and he begins to tackle big canvases from the 1870s onwards. On life at the easel, hands to work, hearts to God, and Lee. Work is work, and there will always be work, and the work is always needing to be done, but the work doesn't always need to be done. Sometimes, the work is listening to God. Sometimes the work is talking to God. Sometimes the work is not listening to God. Sometimes the work is not talking to God. But the work is always being done. Mevagissi, 2011. Watching the catch come in. Gulls hover in hot dispute over imagined morsels. Their excitement grows as a figure in yellow waves them away. Lobster pot. Mother Mary, what do you do here? The curl of the tide caught in the curve, the spine of the hemlock tree. Why do you turn from blue to pink? How did we become entangled in the trap line? The fisherman's lad and I. A manila trail dangles in the depths. Do we remain unloved, trapped and failing our way out? But what of the lobster? In 1880, Marianne passes away, leaving Charles a widow. The marriage had been childless, and Hemi relocates to Falmouth, where he would be a prominent resident of the town for well over three decades. 
On the 25th of August 1881, he marries Amy Mary Freeman, daughter of the prominent Catholic Freeman family, owners of La Morna Granite Quarries. Amy was the sister of artist Winifred Freeman, which we featured in our episode 4. Amy and Charles would go on to have a long, happy marriage. Their ten children seemed to have stayed close to their parents. Two of them became priests, Louis and Paul. But it also seems that all of them were involved in religious life. Angelic Conversation From solemn earth, sing hymns at heaven's gate. Sonnet 29 A beam of light is subtle distraction. This empty space we ring is called heaven. This conversation with angels is forbidden. This mouth forms a perfect hour. Angelic conversations are reserved for those who contain a certain depth, a barometric pressure that holds divinity. Ecstatic bursts are shush, fuh, e. The sea becomes a scrying glass to su- e. Aerials mouth make the th, the th, ud of the sea. Sha'aomi, the end of things with a thud. The Hemi family lived in Churchfield, a house set next to the Catholic Church of St. Mary's, up from the moor in Falmouth. If I stand up from my studio and open the window into the town, I can see it from here. It is quite a distinctive house, and it was designed by a Belgian architect. We went to call on Napier Hemi, where we saw a very different kind of artist's home. I was astonished, although I had heard how beautiful his house was, to see what can be done when a man has a little money and lots of taste and artistic knowledge. There is hardly a corner of it that is not perfect. Not only the house, but the furniture, decorations, door, window, hangings, pictures. Everything is simply lovely. Letter to Elizabeth Forbes from Stanhope Forbes, 1888. It is now a private club, the Athenaeum, but you can still see the facade from the street at Kimberley Place. Photos of the time show a front garden with cypress trees lined in parallel to the house, with Styria climbing up the front face. Legend has it that they kept chickens, and that the chickens would escape into the church now and then, earning them a reprimand from the local priest. Chickens in the church. The stench of fertile hens. Chickens. Bloody chickens. Roosting in sweet hay smell like sweat and Sunday school. The curve of a molting thigh. A new moon. Aphrodite's Marian figure tidies her feathers at the altar. In a family album, now among the archives at Falmouth Art Gallery, there are many photos of Churchfield, its gardens and a tennis court, clearly a point of pride, and many more photos of friends and family. Louis as a young man in his habit, 
Dorothy, one of Charles's and Amy's daughters, in full Victorian dress, Amy with a long white lace shawl and spectacles, or sitting in the garden reading, days out on the beach, Cuthbert and his dog. It is in Falmouth where Hemi comes to his own as a maritime painter. He converted a boat into a studio and christened it Van der Meer. Although it proved not to be a sailing vessel, it would go on to serve as a studio for six years. With the waterline at the grey windows at each side of the boat, the studio was perfect for the use Hemi would give it. It looked like a living room. Rock covered the boards, a dinner set, a crucifix, a canvas. On Hemi's sketches of boats, you can really see that he understood the water. He rarely painted from the shore. We are as much as possible at sea with him. Across the years, his would go on from comprehensive drawings filled in with pencil to simpler and simpler lines that tether movement to paper and shades to sailors. Three dinghies, a triptych. One, the father. Maternal rituals seem richer somehow. Pleas for intercession before the cross of the sail is lowered into the water. Two, the sun. A slight figure is at the stern. Hands to work, hearts to prayer. The sea is cast by chance. Predestination, a whispered doubt before the plunge. Three, the ghost. Capsized in the bay, never left the harbour, never climbed the foothills of Everest or surrendered to the madness of Jerusalem. No, here I am still watching the rain in the house that Adam built. Hemi would reach the peak of his work with Pilchers in 1897, a concept he had been working on for over 14 years, although the final painting would take about 10 days to complete. Study for Pilchards. Two boats at the water's edge, below a mackerel sky. Fishermen wash their nets. Pilchards are called court angels. Here they multiply their flesh. A meat divine from certain angles. A year later, he becomes an associate of the Royal Academy of Arts. The famous mariner. The news that Mr. Charles Napier Hemi had attended to full honours at the Royal Academy was received nowhere with greater satisfaction than at Falmouth, where he has made his home for a quarter of a century, and where his yacht studio is such a familiar object. Excerpt from the Cornish Echo, the Hemi Archives, Falmouth Art Gallery. He continued to work relentlessly throughout his life, exhibiting and gaining commissions, his work growing in regard with his accomplishments. He was always surrounded by artist circles, including Edward Byrne Jones, John Singer Sargent, 
Stanhope Forbes and Henry Scott Tuke. At the end of his life, he attempted military paintings with the break of World War I. When he passed away after a short illness on the 30th of September 1917, the town marked it with a long article in the Falmouth packet. Death of Mr. C. Napier Hemi, R.A., a famous marine painter. It is with deep regret that we have to announce the death of Mr. Charles Napier Hemi, R.A.R.W.S., which took place at Churchfield, Falmouth, on Sunday afternoon in his 77th year. Mr. Hemi was one of England's greatest marine artists, worked most vigorously until July last. In fact, his last Academy picture, Armed Merchantmen, was considered to be one of the best he had ever painted. In July, his health failed, and he gradually grew more weak. For some time previous to his death, he lay in a state of unconsciousness, and the end came most peacefully at five o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Falmouthians extend profound sympathy to Mrs. Hemi and family, who have been called upon to bear a double bereavement within a few days, for Mr. Philip Augustine Napier Hemi died at St. Michael's Hospital Hale on Friday, after a lengthy illness in his 36th year. Through the death of Mr. C. Napier Hemi, Falmouth has lost one of its most distinguished residents, one who has helped to bring the charms of the locality to the notice of the world. The deceased possessed a delightful personality, and to spend half an hour in his company was a source of great delight. He loved Falmouth Bay and Harbour, and up to within the last few years passed nearly the whole of his time on his studio yachts, including the Vandermeer, on which he painted many of his well-known canvases. Lakes Falmouth Packet, October 4th, 1917. Although time would see his and some of his contemporaries' work lose favour, to this day Charles continues to be regarded as one of the most important British maritime painters of his time. You can see some of his work in Falmouth Art Gallery, in the Lane Gallery in Newcastle, and in the Tate Gallery in London. Across this episode, we had heard some of Sarah Cave's work inspired by Charles Napier Hemi. Among this beautiful collection, we have a few more poems to share. Here is Sarah with the rest of her creative response. The Widow There are no walls in paradise. Prayers spoken to a frozen ocean articulate deep fissures beneath the black veil, a mesh that signifies absence. Warm pockets of stars cluster around a magic circle drawing tighter our communication between word and image. When I talk to the sea, I am not talking, but listening. My hand moves guided as the sea says, ow, 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 ow. Sunset shadows, watercolour detail. Alone again, out on the water. Breaking a line's middle, 
between solitary creature and oh, weary ampersand. What is this fascination for empty boats and conversations with missing angels? Ask the witchboard what the sea might say and how it might mouth the depth of itself. Are you there? Ooh, Are you a someone, one that is some? Are you part of the sea? J Do you have a voice? A B Is your voice somewhere in between? Is that correct? Yes. Where is your voice? Are you human? No. What are you? Qua X. Are you a deity? Yes. Do you have a name? Duh. Air. Air. Huh. Vignettes. After Charles Napier, Hemi. The widow and child. The garden is the breakwater. Shoals of pilchards emerge from the apiaries and we bury the dead and dress our children in their parents' clothes. Portrait of the artist, head cast down. A hen on his shoulder. This is where the painter likes to sit and dream of a god seen through salt water. I got the chance to talk to Sarah about her response and about Charles Napier Hemi. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for writing these beautiful points for On the Hill. Good to have you. Hi, Sherry. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. Glad to hear it. We found Charles Napier Hemi, who, yeah. who seems like someone who would have had a connection with you. Yeah, I think, I think Charles stood out as relevant. Um, 
sort of figure mm. and I, I was taken by how traditional his paintings were but also how they chimed with my emphasis on process which was really interesting um, so yeah and he was a Catholic <laughs> which was really really nice and yet like you were saying earlier he's the first Catholic that he's done this program Catholic on the hill yes I have um so I'm a sort of like a Catholic fancier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but it's interesting because you talk about uh, the process in the poems, and there I noticed that you use um, like painting terms in some of the work, like triptych or watercolor. You want to talk about that? Okay. Um, yeah. Well, there are a couple of things going on there. The first is that I understand the. Um, process of of creating something perhaps more than I I am able to achieve the process of creating something so I'm quite often disappointed by my actual artwork but I love um the process of getting there and all of the kind of the art materials and I think I, in my MA I was told that um I was I was describing too much and that I should I should actually enact the art and I had to say well no because <laughs> I can't enact the art because I'm um, quite a basic artist I mean I'm still sort of teaching myself actual art I'm a poet I use the words to describe um, things and the nice thing about Charles was that it was really nice combination of traditional things that again like because I don't do painting I don't do um, draftsmanship sketching that sort of thing uh, other than as a hobby it's really nice to sort of I don't know almost luxuriate in the the romanticism of the words like mm. they're quite sort of gorgeous well, draftsman palette all those things are really kind of beautiful and there was the other thing that like a lot of painting goes on to cloth rather than paper and I love that idea of cloth um, because cloth is something different like it's <laughs> quite a complex being like it's it's many many holes <laughs> many many holes yeah <laughs> i was thinking about the holes i was like how do you cover all of that like it goes through you know it goes through yeah. more than it would with paper absolutely and it's and it's actually creating that cloth or i suppose you, you know like the canvas um is a craftsmanship in itself and i quite like playing with the layers of that which is something you couldn't necessarily do in an artwork but by putting the language together um, in a poem you're able to sort of expose those processes if that makes sense that answers the question <laughs> yeah I was just I, I you say the thing about the layers and it's um, I'm kind of really luxuriating like you say in that the idea that yeah there is a a layering in painting that is not necessarily easily reproduced with words and yet your poems do seem to have this kind of I, I don't know sound layering to them which is fascinating thank you yeah, <laughs> yeah I think I try to um, especially with these poems I wanted to have a really immersive experience like because when you're interacting with the sea as a poet or an artist mm -hmm. the sea is so full of sound um, 
and that sound is really it it, it penetrates you um, in a very profound way. I mean, you were saying earlier that he used to go out on boats and and paint um, and and sort of sketch and things, and I, I find the idea of actually being on the sea and doing that really interesting. It must must have been quite overwhelming in some ways. The other thing that I was really interested um, about and connects to the wonderful image of the chickens, which are present mm -hmm. in the poem. Um, so we know that he he commissioned this house um, from a Belgian architect, still standing in Falmouth. But he, his house bordered the Catholic Church in Falmouth. And there's this legend that the chickens of the house would run into the church and he would get in trouble with the priest because of it. <laughs> I mean, that's irresistible. I, I would have written about it too. <laughs> I think it's lovely. Um, as someone who used to keep chickens, I know that they are such lovely, um, but also mad. <laughs> company they they're like they're like friends but they're also their actions are just completely incomprehensible at the same time and mm. they have distinct smells and things like that and I just I loved this image of the chickens in the church because I suppose because it's so interruptive yeah interruptive disruptive yeah. um and also like domestic as well it's and so I think domestic. Yeah. one of the really nice things about both about the paintings but also about um, maybe my feelings towards um, religion is like the mix between the institutional and the domestic is is actually quite lovely I think when you get sort of stories about chickens in the church you immediately think of I don't know there's just something rather sort of endearing about it and so yeah, I loved the idea of, um, you know, like the altar is such a sacred space in a church. Mm. So this this plump, and we did actually have a hen called Aphrodite, um, this <laughs> plumped up, um, sort of almost molting-esque <laughs> chicken <laughs> sitting at the altar. Um, and that, in some way, that, that was equatable with Mary, I'm sure is my innate blasphemy. <laughs> my heretical side coming in but yeah yeah no and also I like people who like animals um, yes. um that helps me to segue to to the mystical quality of your work cool. I don't know if mystical is the right way to say it but I've heard you um you were actually given a reading a room away in the Falmouth Art Gallery from mm. one of his paintings a few months ago again. Was I? Yes. <laughs> I went the oh. other day and I saw the painting and I remember where you were. Oh, um, how funny. He was right there. You were speaking to him. <laughs> um, but there is a we, there's a draft of some angels in his work as well. We know he was really religious. Um, there seems to be more than one connection to him, I think. Um, and, and I think you with that into your work really well, especially on on the balance, which it seems like you're writing a letter to him, or I interpret it as such. Can you talk to me about that poem a little? Yeah. Um, 
I think I when you gave me the the option of choosing um the first thing I discovered about him was that he had wanted to be a uh, well he had wanted to follow some sort of religious vocation and wasn't sure which one that he yeah. would follow or if he would at all and he spent some time with the Dominicans and mm. personally found quite sort of similar I've, I've had a, a sort of similar experience where I've I've kind of interacted with vocation and, and what it means and I was very drawn to that people have managed to combine those things and make incredible things but for me Charles Charles's sort of shift into into being an artist rather than rather than a a, a monk um, or a priest mm. kind of chimed closer with how I feel I wanted to ask you about Stride, so our listeners will be able to see some of this poem um, available in text. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Um, yeah, so uh, next, uh, well, I think it will have gone um, from the 9th to the 16th of November. Um, some of the poems will be up on uh, a little magazine called Stride, which is um, an experimental poetry journal uh, edited by Rupert Lloydell and they'll just they'll just be there and you can have a look at them they you know sometimes I, I've quite a few of my work um, the sound is is performative but uh, I also like to think that the sound is embedded in in the visual as well yeah I would agree with that having seen them both um, especially for these ones it, you would gain um, something by looking at them as well as just listening. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. That's been great. Thank you, Sherry. It's been amazing. Thanks for listening to episode 10 of On the Hill. Thanks to Falmouth Art Gallery for giving me access to Charles Napier Hemi's documents. Thanks to Sarah Cave for her amazing work inspired by Hemi. And thanks to Alex Horn for once more lending his voice to bring us our research. Stay with us as in each episode we discover a new story, learn more about the cemetery, relay the historical account of someone who once lived, and share a creative response from one of our writers. We are very close to achieving one of our goals for this season. Could you help get us there? We ask that you spread the word about On the Hill. Tell someone you know who might like this podcast and help others find us by rating and reviewing our podcast wherever you listen to us. A few more episodes await us this season. Make sure to subscribe not to miss out. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook at We Are On The Hill. On The Hill is written, recorded and produced in Falmouth by me with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about Charles Napier Hemi, British art and Falmouth Cemetery by me. Fragments from the Lake Falmouth Packers, the Cornish Echo, Charles's writings, Margaret Powell's book, the Newcastle Chronicle, the Art Journal, read by Alex Horn. Creative piece by Sarah Cave. You have heard Marsh, the Dragonier Regiments from Ramdor, from Jay's Shade, and G. Petzig, Adeste Fidelis from Collegium Vocale, and Ludwig van Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D Major, Op. 61 First Movement, performed by the U.S. Marine Chamber Orchestra. 
This episode was edited by me. Our theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. Join us again next month for our next episode. I am Cherezai Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill. Precious things shining ever on the wings of the damsel fly.